Hi, this is Paul Butler. I'm the Senior Pastor of New Heart Baptist Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. We hope that this podcast will be a great blessing to you and encourage your life. Romans 12, chapter one and, uh, verse 1 and 2 is one of my life scriptures. Who else has this memorised or partly memorised or has been important to them? I challenge for you, if you haven't learnt this, I challenge you to learn verses 1 and 2 this week. This is a really good word. Let's read this together. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Mm. I need to keep clicking this. It's going to be a trip. You want to go back one? Yeah. <laughs> good one, Richard. <laughs> Thank you. Good, good on you. Uh, okay. Worries, distractions, deceitfulness. Hmm. Jesus told a story, uh, a parable. Uh, it's called the parable of the soils, actually, but it's about the seed. And... In that story, there was the third seed. And I want to read to you what the Amplified Version talks about what happened. This is Jesus' explanation. And he said, And the one on whom seed was sown among thorns, and the, the seed is God's word, the message of God, the word of God. And the seed falls among thorns. And this is the one who hears the word, but the worries the distractions of the world and the deceitfulness, the superficial pleasures and delight of riches choked word and it yields no fruit. Worries, distraction, deceitfulness. It's like when you plant a veggie garden and you've got these weeds that, that seem to grow twice as fast as your vegetables and they take all the nutrients and all the space and it's like all the water and all the fertilizer that you put on your garden is meant for your, your vegetables, but your weeds seem to be competing with that. And it's just like that. You live in a world filled with competition for your heart. Your heart. The Word of God is intended to go into your heart and it's, and it's intended to take root and bear fruit. But you have, a comp you have competitors. And those competitors come in the form of worries, distractions, and deceitfulness. Is that true? Anybody here immune from worries, distractions, and deceitfulness? I, I, am, I am like you. I have the same competitors coming into my life, coming at me, and they come and they choke and they try to 
to cover up the word of God in my life. It's interesting when we get to sorry, Paul's, I'm just going to go back and, and just look at where Paul starts this, this amazing two verses. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Therefore is a summary word. Right? It's like so. It's the result of. It's the result of everything I've just said. I want you to consider this in a light of this. In this case, Paul, therefore, was referring to everything he just told them in chapters 1 to 11. And if you've read chapters 1 to 11, it's full of things. Full of amazing understanding, wisdom and revelation about God's mercy. It's interesting, Paul begins this chapter not as a superior. What does he, what, how does he come? As a brother, he's not coming as a superior. He's not coming with looking down on them and saying, you're my subordinates, but he's coming as a fellow brother. And he's not commanding. What is he doing? He's urging. And he's appealing to his brothers and sisters in their faith. Now, I, I think about this and I think about, although Paul had the authority to make this a command, his preference was to let God's word, his works and his ways, everything that he talked about that was so magnificent in chapters 1 to 11, bring a conviction and a motivation for their response. You know, I could tell you what to do or I can tell you how good God is what he, who he is and what he's done, and let that be your motivation. I, I, I think um, motivational speaking lasts as long as you, you know, the distance between here and there. Often, it doesn't go deep. But when God transforms you in here, there is a deep work that goes beyond that door and it goes out that gate into your car and goes back home and it goes into your workplace and it changes who you are. I don't want to be a motivational speaker. I want to be a person who puts salt in the water and puts out a tray of bounty that makes you hungry. My heart is to, to reveal how Jesus loves me, to, to, to look at the Word and to, to look into it and to make you hungry and to let that be your most precious desire for you to... to, to Hear me speak and then go home and go, I'm going to read that again. I'm going to read this and I'm going to read that. It's going to make you hungry. And it's this, Paul, Paul's saying, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. So therefore, in view of God's mercy, this is a call to look back, to remember, take into account, to recall our view in view. 
Think about that. In view of. It's kind of like looking in your revision mirror. It's looking back. In view of what we see, what we focus on, it's the form of our point of view. It, it forms our point of view. Do you have a point of view? Where'd you get it from? How did it come about? As Christians, our point of view about life and about God and about faith should come from God himself and what he's revealed through his son Jesus and through his word that is given to us. If it's formed from anything else, then it is not going to be helpful. It's actually going to undermine what God intends for you, what is true and perfect, what his revealed will, God's true and perfect will. So it's in light of God's mercy, it's in the view of God's mercy that our view has to be shaped. Um, we use expressions like your worldview, your opinion. Uh, I think we're at a very dangerous point in the Christian church right now where opinions are shaping and opinions and the, the things, the values and the ideas of the world are, sh are coming into the church and putting pressure on our, our thinking and we're going, to, we're going to talk about that. But I think we have to keep in mind what, what are we putting in our, what are we looking at? What is our view? What are you digging deeply into with your attention and your focus? In light of God's mercy. So I want you to think carefully about this. Uh, there, are two, there are twin words in the New Testament, grace and mercy. Now some of you have got definitions of that, but I want you to, just for a minute, just get, quickly get together with somebody close to you and just say, what does grace mean to you? What does mercy mean to you? Don't read that. You could cheat. Oh, it's just that. Well, that's only going to give you mercy. You're only going to get half the answer. All right, what's the difference? Who'd like to... Uh, who would like to uh, tell me what the difference between grace and mercy is? Beth? Grace is things that we get that we don't deserve. Things is that we don't get that we do deserve. God's mercy is when he does not give an undeserving person what they deserve. It's very similar to what you said. You know, uh, how many people here consider themselves worthy uh, of, of goodness? Um, you might be a good person, um, but in terms of whether you're good enough, 
to deal with your own sin against God. There's not one person here, including me, that's good enough to do that. So I'm a person that's in need of mercy, um, and all of us are in need of mercy, and anybody outside this building is in need of mercy. So God's mercy is when he does not give, uh, he, he does not give an undeserving person what they deserve. That undeserving person receives not, does not receive what they deserve. What do they deserve? Mm-hmm. God is a God of justice. He's holy. So he, he has this uh, uh, will. And if we don't live according to his will, which all of us are, uh, do, then there is a judgment that has to be applied. Uh, so when, when God applies his mercy... God's mercy is connected to his compassion, his forgiveness, and his loving kindness. It's got nothing to do whether you deserve it or not. Mercy is where, for me, when I think about God's mercy in my life, is, is like, I'll give you an illustration. Um, Simo, you all know Simo. Um, Simo is our um, cafe chappy down at Balmoral. It was here, sent out from here to Balmoral. And... Um, Simo tells the story of that um, he had, a, had his final court appointment um, before a judge and he went before the judge and he, he called on the mercy of the court and the judge listened, looked at all the testimonies of a changed life because Simo had been transformed by the good news of Jesus in a radical way and the testimonies and the people that came forward to, to speak on behalf of his character and his change, the judge could have sentenced him for this much. But he said, in light of your change, I am going to show you mercy. And he was put on a a good behaviour bond. Basically, if you go back to your old ways, this sentence will be reapplied. That is what God has done for you and me. What was meant to be applied was eternal death and separation, but through his son Jesus Christ, his death, burial and resurrection, Jesus took my place, paid my penalty and the words not guilty, sentence paid, mercy. How good is that? That comes from God's mercy, his compassion, his grace. And if you could keep me going one more, I'm stopped working as one forward. No, that one. In Romans 1 to 11, this is what we learn. I'm going to give you a quick summary of the chapters that run before Romans 12. Uh, This is what we learn, that God's wrath, we learn about God's wrath. You know that the the passage that hit the fan when... um, what is it? Um, Izzy Falau posted Romans. Do you know what? That passage had been read and preached on and announced for thousands of years. But at that moment in history, it was like a light on Kinderwood. It just exploded. And I'm sure he didn't realize what he was doing. But at that very moment, with what was going on in our culture, this idea of wrath, that this identification of different things that God was opposed to, 
came out in such a list of things that people went, What? You can't say that. But God had been, it'd been in Romans for thousands of years. It remains there today. And if you go back and read it, the list that he put on Instagram is there. And it's part of identifying both God's wrath and God's righteousness. Righteousness is this holiness, this separateness, this complete purity that God has. And God has a wrath and an anger against humanity's sin. But it doesn't finish there. It goes on and, it's, and God has a wrath. He has a rightness, a purity, but he also has a judgment. The judgment is correct. It's not like we don't deserve it. It's not like, oh, that's a bit extreme. It's like, going, no, God says, no, I have every right to judge you. And then it goes on, he talks about, in Romans, the fall. He talks about sin and he talks about death. That death, that eternal death, is the judgment of God. Don't ever think that God is not angry at sin. But don't ever put a full stop that God is angry. Because that's not the full story. And I think that's when Izzy put that, that post on Instagram. It was like an angry post. It was presenting in, just by not enough information. It just presented one side of God. And people just went nuts over that. You know, he, he actually uh, won, a, won the court case against him. He, he got... It almost bankrupted Australian Rugby Union because it was proven that what he was doing was quoting from the Bible and if they're going to outlaw that, they're going to outlaw what we believe. And actually, it all went very quiet. The, the, the thing went boom. But it was this whole revelation, but it was only half the revelation. And you know what? I want you to know this. When you present Jesus like that, then people will explode because they need to know both sides. God is a righteous God. God, there is a judgment. There is a place called hell. There is a place uh, in God's righteousness that says, I will decide and it will be based on your decision about who you, how you treat me as God. But then God goes on and says, Jesus' death, his resurrection, how he made us right through his death and resurrection. Uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit into our lives so that those who believe in this would just come alive, making us to be holy as he is holy. You know, um, God wants us, you and me, to be like Jesus. And Jesus was holy. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was good. I'll never be fully perfect and holy in this life, but I'm slowly, day by day, becoming more like him. Uh, God's sovereignty. How our, and I love this part. In chapter 11, how our disobedience is an opportunity for God to extend to us undeserved mercy. And he actually talks about, Paul talks about Israel and how their disobedience made a way for us Gentiles. And at the end of the day, when the days of the Gentile, it talks about the days of the Gentile are over, that the disobedience of the Gentiles, people who are not Jewish, will come to an end and their disobedience will be a way for the Jews who are not following God to find mercy and grace again. How good is that? So it's kind of like, even our disobedience is something that God can use. He doesn't want it, but he goes, that's not going to stop me from revealing who I am, which is that I am a just God and I've made a way to make you right. 
How cool is that? This is God's mercy. This is the chapters leading up to it. And it's kind of the background to why Paul starts with, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's the two sides. This is the reality. This is the reality of God's mercy. We've all sinned. We all deserve what? To die. Eternal separation. The big three-letter word, love it, involved, should have underlined it. But, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is, there is the full picture there in those two verses. How good is that? So these are the mercies that Paul was bringing to our attention. And basically, we all deserve eternal death because of sin, but instead we receive eternal life. And God's mercy means I don't get the punishment that I deserve. Instead, I get his grace, a gift that I didn't deserve. Grace is a gift I didn't deserve. This is the mercy and grace of God. They're twins and they operate together. I can't almost separate... I can't separate grace and mercy. They, they seem to, to work together in the goodness of God. Right at the end, just before we hit Romans 12, we've got this, this little line, and it's a little hymn, and this is just a little excerpt from that hymn. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. And I want to paraphrase that in light of this whole teaching about God's mercy from him we receive mercy through him we live and give mercy and to him belongs all glory for the mercy so freely given so if you display any of the mercy of God it's because it came from him he's doing it through you and you're living and you're manifesting that or showing it revealing it to other people in your life, in light, in view of, in view of all this mercy. And there we, there we get into this really strange kind of words that, that in our culture we don't do this, but offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Anybody here made a sacrifice? So it's not part of our culture, right? But it was part of Jesus' day in culture, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, sacrifices were part of your daily life, part of your seasonal life. For Jews, the sacrifices were made in the temple and they were made in a seasonal way. For other people who were Gentiles, they would go to, to they would either have a family shrine or they'd go to, to their temple of their God and they would make sacrifices there. And Paul is saying, Jew, Jew, Jew or Gentile, you understand about sacrifices, we don't. So we have to kind of get into the head of those original readers and understand what it is to, be a, to, ha to make a sacrifice and therefore be a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so um, when I think about a living sacrifice, I think about... Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? God told Abraham to take his only son, the son promised that he would, uh, 
have so many children from that son that they would be like the stars in the sky. And God tells uh, Abraham, I want you to take your only son who is the heir and who have many descendants. And I want you to take him and I want you to offer him. And God goes, and Abraham goes, goes up, he has it all ready, creates an altar, puts wood on it, puts Isaac on it, and is about to kill him, and God says, stop. This is offering a living sacrifice. This is laying it all down. This is putting it all on the altar. Have you ever heard any of those expressions? I'm putting it all on the altar. Um, What's really beautiful is that God did exactly the same with his son, Jesus his only begotten son. He put it all on the altar. The difference between Abraham and Jesus is that um, God um, intercepted Abraham and said, stop, and he took, uh, there was a ram caught in, in a bush, and he said, put that ram on the altar in its place. This is a beautiful thing. It's the same thing for us when we think about what a living sacrifice means. I, Jesus, Paul is saying, I want, um, I'm, I'm urging you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. What that means is that you're like Abraham. You're putting yourself on an altar and you're asking God to take this, this life of yours and, and you're offering it and you're saying, Lord, take my life. And what does God do at that very moment that you do that? He does the same thing that he did to Abraham. He says, I take your life. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for offering me your life. He said, now I'm going to put my son over your life. And he's going to take your place. And this is mercy. And he's going to say, everything my son is, is perfect. It's far more perfect than your life. And this, this death of offering your life and laying it down for me, I accept it. But I'm going to trump that and I'm going to put a, a life and a sacrifice that's once for all. And it's going to cover everything that you ever did yesterday, today and, and tomorrow. And my son's going to cover you. So Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And when you do that, we do that and and our bodies come under Jesus' body and his body is the ultimate sacrifice, which is holy and pleasing to God. You know, my body, your body, your life, is it holy and pleasing to God? Yes, no. How can, it own, how can our, what we offer be holy and pleasing to God? Except through this, that there was somebody else who made a sacrifice on my behalf that was holy and pleasing, and God says, they did it on my behalf. Jesus did that on your behalf. When Jesus sacrificed his life on a cross, he did that in a way so that you could go, I need you and I need what you bring to me, your holiness and your, and, and your pleasure that you bring to the Father, your purity, your perfection. I need that. I need you, your sacrifice to cover my sacrifice. I laid down my life, but Jesus 
please cover me with your sacrifice. And when we do that, what does God say over you and me? I'm pleased. I'm pleased with everything my son did for you. I'm glad that you received that for yourself. Is that complicated? It is kind of complicated, but basically my decision is like Abraham's decision. I will, I will obey God and I will lay my life down and I will know that God will come and he will take my place. He will make me right. He will do what needs to be done because I can't do. What I'm bringing is nothing. What I'm bringing is just flesh and bones, soul and spirit, but I need God to make me right. I love, I was talking to um, uh, Stuart earlier today, and uh, Stuart said this, uh, you're speaking on Romans 12, 1 and 2, he said, that's one of my life verses, and he says, along with Galatians 2, 20. <laughs> that's another verse that he learned. And I went, well, funny that I'm mentioning that today. So what a living sacrifice looks like this. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's kind of like there's Jesus on the cross and then I get crucified on, like that. In fact, it's like I'm on a cross and Jesus is, comes and his cross takes, is in front of me. And I'm behind. And when God looks at me, where am I? I'm behind him. What does he see? He sees Jesus. And what is Jesus? Jesus is perfect. And so when Jesus and when God the Father looks at you, what does he see? He sees everything that Jesus has done. He no longer looks at everything you've done. He goes, I don't look at everything you've done anymore. I can only see my son. And when I look at him, I just love him. And therefore I love. My old self has been crucified with Christ and therefore it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How good is this? It's just so simple. And you know what? What has this got to do with anxiety? We're getting there. Stay with me. Um, true worship can't be demanded. True worship is offered. It's given out of respect to someone who is worthy of it. It's a recognition of value, authority, power, beauty and love. And in this case, our worship is because of all of God's mercy. Um, in the church today, throughout the world, worship has been unintentionally reduced um, to... I guess, to what we do on a Sunday morning, what we did when we sang together. But I think the Apostle Paul is describing the heart of true worship here, uh, which is a life laid down. A life laid down can include singing songs to God. You know, when I um, way back, I remember that I really struggled to express my worship in a physical way because I felt like a show-off or a because nobody else did, and people would say, oh, that's just emotional, and, you know, it's, faith doesn't, you know, faith is not emotion, and don't express emotion, uh, and, 
And I go, well, actually, faith should, should express itself through every part of me. Um, it should intellectually, emotionally, physically. And I really struggled to, to break free of the, the rules that the church that I went to would say. They, they asked, they would, people would raise their hands or clap their hands. They'd ask them to leave and go down to the next Pentecostal church. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Um, and, and so I, that was a real religious burden on me and so when I realized that Jesus was asking me to worship him with my physical body in a, in a demonstrable way and he said you're free to do that Paul it was like everybody's watching me so I'd do this and I'd clap very quietly and raise my hands up here and, and I felt like everybody's looking at me um, but God delivered me of that because I really just wanted to worship him with every part of me. And our sung, and pr- our, our sung praise and worship um, is part of our worship, especially when it's me putting myself, putting him ahead of myself. But our sung and praise and worship can be like a husband. It can be like a husband who adores his wife and writes beautiful poem or says beautiful words to her about how wonderful she is and how much he loves her, but he doesn't express that love and adoration through a laying down of his life to her. When someone says nice things about you but doesn't back it up with their actions, how does it make you feel? Does it make you feel like they're genuine? No. And you know what? I think we can come to church, we can sing the praise of God and even even meaning it, but God is saying true love, or you know, I'm going to quote <laughs> Princess by true love. Um, true, true love is actually expressed in your actions. Interestingly, in um, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul says this to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. This is a, a good passage talking about husbands and wives, but it really, when I think about it, it's talking about what true worship is. Uh, tr- uh, Jesus laid down his life for the church, and then he says, now act like me, husbands. True love, true worship, is laying your life down to God. And Jesus displayed that. And it's this expression of love, this expression of worship. Um, Throughout the Bible, um, we are described as tripart beings, spirit, soul, and body. And our body, soul, and spirit, or body, soul, and spirit, are interconnected. What happens to one part affects the others. And the rule of our life, we don't often think about it, but the king of our, of our life is our spirit. And our spirit who, so whoever rules our spirit rules our soul and our body. Um, it's, it's a really interesting thing um, when you think about it. Um, when, before I became a Christian, my spirit was dead. So I'm being ruled by a dead king. And then... When Jesus becomes my king, he comes in and he's the king and he brings to to me what the writer of Ezekiel 
And he's prophesying about this new thing that God would do. And then the New Testament believers got it. And we get it. And he says this. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols. And I will give you a... Where's, that, where's our church name come from? From this passage. A new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This new spirit... Is connected to the Holy Spirit who lives in me. And now as a, as a follower of Jesus, it's not my old dead spirit, it's King. It's King Jesus who I have submitted to. He is, he is my King. And now spirit, soul, body, there's a hierarchy. And it's no longer my body that tells me how to live. My, and, and we're going to look at that. Um, it's no longer my soul, my, all the things that make up my soul that tells me how to live. It's my spirit that informs. And so the, my spirit informs my soul and my, my spirit informs my body. And it tells me the perfect and pleasing will of God. And that's the new hierarchy I now live under because what have I done? What did Paul say in the first part? He starts with saying, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice so that there is a new ruler in town and his name is Jesus. And where does he live? In here. And he, I've submitted my spirit to him and he's now ruling in here. So my, there's a new hierarchy. And, you know, there's another, um, another way of talking about Spirit, soul, and body. And Jesus, and in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, we have the giving of the Ten Commandments. And so we have Jesus explaining to somebody who said, what's the most important command? And he responded to, by saying, love the Lord your God with all your, with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is a breaking down of what we mean by uh, spirit, soul, and body. With all your heart, with all your soul, uh, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and all your strength. So, heart is this will and choice. Soul is your feelings and emotions. Your mind is your thoughts and your intellect. And the interesting word is what is strength? Well, it's actually all those things that you dedicate together, both your your heart, your soul, and your mind together. You you're combining of our heart, soul, mind, and my body. As a force, as a might, we put everything that we have together and what do we do with it? What's the great command? And why do we love him? In view of, his, in view of God's mercies, in view of what he's done for you, you love him. True worship is not something... Uh, so our spirit is ruled by the Holy Spirit. Our soul and body are servants of our spirit. Um, is that true? When you become a Christian, your soul and body become servants of our new spirit. Is that true? Yeah. We become like the one we worship with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Or we become like the one we worship with all our spirit, soul and body. It's either way. You can say both. 
And then Paul goes on and he says this. So, in light of all that, he says, Now, do not conform to the patterns of this world. I, at no other time in my life have I ever experienced the patterns of the world imposing themselves on society and on the church more than in the last three years. I, it's been incredible. In fact, um, um, trying to keep up with what you can say and what you can't say um, ha- is just incredible. Uh, it, the most connected people, like you see a young person being corrected by another young person, they, they say, well, you can't say that. And the young person, like, like a 20-year-old and a 17-year-old, and the 17-year-old saying to a 20-year-old, you can't say that. And the 20-year-old goes, why? Well, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden you go, wow, the pattern of the world, it's just like randomly made up. And then who says? <laughs> that we are living in a world where they call it uh, relative, um, subject relativity. This idea that basically if enough of us think this way, then that's the truth. The only trouble is if enough of us is the people who control the media and the social media say this is the truth and that's the truth. And we've lost sight that God actually is the truth. That there is object, objective truth or absolute truth. And, and we are different people. Paul is saying, do not conform to the patterns of the world. I am going to tell you very something very straight and very clear. There is a pattern of the world that has increasingly become um, part of Christian's thinking, whereby we are continually bombarded with this changing morals and changing values. And we go, okay, we need to be more inclusive. We need to, to, to uh, oh, wow, I've got, now I've got to change my language and now I've got to be this and that, I've got to be that. But really what it's all about is that there's this, evolving pattern of the world that we can't keep up with and the world can't keep up with. Three years ago, LGBTI plus, that actually added a plus, didn't exist. Some of you don't even know what some of those letters mean. And they added the plus because what's happening in the patterns of this world is that this whole idea of um, subject relativity, no, no, relative subjectivity, this idea that we make up the rules without there, there, there being a God who has a way, has a will, have a perfect and pleasing will. And we are now being told and pressured, you need to conform to this pattern. Now, every part of me is a rebellious kind of person wants to rebel, but I actually want to continue to love. But I also don't want to sell out on the things that God says are His will, His perfect and pleasing will. I don't want to, to condone, I don't want to have to condone, I don't want to have to agree with positions that the patterns of this world are saying are right and true. I actually want to go back and say, God... What do you say about these things? I want to conform to him. And I want to be transformed by that. 
You will not be, no one here is going to be transformed by the patterns of this world. You will just be conformed. And then you'll get very mixed up. Because I can tell you right now, in about three years' time, I'm, I'm prophesying this, <laughs> in about three years' time, some of the positions that people, or maybe five years' time, but some of the positions that people are actually offering their life to and laying down their life for as being the truth, they're going to go, what was I thinking? They're, and they're already starting to do that. Who said? But at the time, they went, oh, no, that's, that's, what, that's what it is. Paul says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. And there's another three-letter word there, but... Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. The heart of sin is that humans decided uh, that they wanted their will to be the ruling will. And that is still true today. We live in a world that says uh, there is no such thing as God's will. There is only man's will. But the problem is whenever you see man's will at work... It seems to be good for a little bit and then it gets corrupted. It seems to have right intentions, but then it gets corrupted. God's will is perfect all the time. His good, pleasing and perfect will. And so we have to figure out whether we are going to be pressured by the conforming, pressured into conforming and therefore not get the heat of the world or whether we want to actually come under fire for saying, no, I, I believe that God has a perfect, pleasing, good will and I'm going after that and you may not like that. But I still love you. I just don't agree with you. At the moment, that's where we've got to, where we live in a world that says you, it's not enough for you to um, agree to disagree. You actually have to come alongside me and say, I agree with what you're doing. I agree with what you're saying. I agree with what you believe. And it's kind of like, can't I have a different view? Can't I believe that God has a value system that's different to yours? And for me not to judge you because you think differently, but to say, I disagree with your, your values. I disagree with your choices. I disagree with your idea of morality. I disagree with your, your belief, your philosophy. I disagree, but I still love you. I'm not judging you. I'm not telling you that you... You have to be like me. You have to believe what I'm saying. But I don't agree with you. But we're in a world that says inclusiveness equals agreement. And when you don't do that, and some of you are in workplaces, right? You're in workplaces where if you do not agree, condone, say yes, support, then you are in trouble. You possibly won't get your promotion. You possibly will come under fire from someone who says, you're judging, you're hater. This is the world we're living in right now. And it's kind of like, who decided this? It's just evolved. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. This is going back, the daily offering of our lives, the refusal of conformity to the world's patterns, the transformation and renewal of our mind is an ongoing process. It's not just a once-off transformation. Certainly people have these absolutely transformational moments and they have this renewing of their mind, but it's an ongoing thing. It's a daily offering of our lives. Jesus actually said um, that daily, uh, di dying daily 
to what I want, what the world is pressuring me to want, what the devil wants me to want. It's what Jesus described as the life of those who would be his disciples, that you take up your cross daily. Or, as he said, not my will, but yours. God's perfect and pleasing will. When God comes in and his, his spirit comes into you, your spirit comes under him and then your soul and your body come under him and there's this thing that goes down. And it's not my will, it's the spirit. And where do I learn about the spirits, what the spirits, perfect, God's perfect and pleasing will? The Holy Spirit's my teacher and the word of God is his tool book. His tool for us to reveal His perfect and pleasing will. And when I abide in who Jesus is, what the Word says and what the Spirit is teaching me, those three witnesses come and teach me, then I can begin to, to look at the patterns of this world and go, no, I'm going after the pattern of God, after God's will, and I'm going to embrace it. Now, where does this all land with anxiety? This is where it lands with anxiety. This is how I overcome anxiety. I offer my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength daily to God. I refuse to conform to the patterns of this world, the values of this world that, that come at me and say, this is important. And those patterns can make me anxious and worried and I can become obsessed by those or overwhelmed by those. And I have to refuse to allow that pattern to define me, to say, you're, you know, you don't have enough money, you don't have a nice house, you, you're not this, you're not that. I refuse to conform to that pattern and instead I keep in view and live out of God's mercy and who he, what he has done, who he is and what he says about me. In view of God's mercy. I can tell you, that means I'm finishing. That means doesn't matter who you are, or what you are, where you've been, what you've done, quoting a Backstreet Boys. Um, that in view of God's great mercy, you can go back and you can offer yourselves knowing that God's already offered his son. He's made you right. You can say no to a world and all its values and all its ways and say, no, nah, I'm actually going after God. I'm actually going after what he said is right. I'm not going to define what is right and wrong for myself. And finally, I'm going to keep in view what God has done for me, who he is, what he's done, and who he says I am. And that's going to define me. And when I have things come at me that are anxious, that are worries, what am I going to do with them? I'm just going to take them and I'm going to put them on the fire along with my heart, my soul, my mind and my strength and go, God, this is all yours. All this weight over all these things, I'm under you. You're over me. That's part one. Part two's coming. I want you just to just take a moment right now. I 
Don't you become aware of heaviness, anxiety or worry? That's come because you, in, in your view, these things are important or have power or they've come and they've created anxiety or worry. Now I want you to now step back from that and I want you to see in, in view of God's mercy covering that. And I want you to invite God's mercy to come and to deliver you from the anxiety, worry and the heavy burden of that thing. And I want you to apply all that Jesus has done for you, his death, his resurrection. And I'm just going to pray for you right now. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died, who was buried, and who rose again because of his great mercy. I declare a breaking of the burden of your slave master and of sin and of worry and anxiety over that thing right now. Uh, break its power in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I declare that his great mercy has fallen upon you. He has made you right. He is walking and living and in you. And you are going to now offer your life, including that thing, as a living sacrifice which is true and pleasing worship to God. Just let it go right now. Just offer it to him. Don't let it stay. Just offer it. Jesus, come. Lord, we ask your fire to fall upon this. Lord, we repent that we have conformed to the patterns of this world. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to conform to your pattern, not because of pressure, but because of, in view of your great mercy. And we ask and invite you to transform and renew our thinking, our feelings, and the choices that we make, that they would be ruled by Jesus, King Jesus. Take your rule rightful places, ruler of our lives, Jesus. We welcome you. Take your place.